Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, thank you for this time to gather together and learn more about your precious word and what you have in store for us in our lives. Bless this time together and the teaching we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Kim. Here's your Bible. Come on, it's cute. Is that pink? It's a genuine question because I'm mildly colorblind. So it could be red. So we are in a new season, at least it feels like that. It's still the middle of summer, but uh, is most families transition back to school life, it feels like a new season. And with that, a new series, Learning Prayer, a season in the Psalms, probably eight, nine weeks. Why? Why the series? Well, um, prayer is a lifelong project and part of the Christian life. It's something that is never mastered, though we often can look at it that way. It's something I need to get better at. We look at it as kind of performative, uh, like shooting free throws for a basketball player. Um, when, the, at least for me, as my life goes on, I see prayer uh, less and less is a performance that I need to get better at and more of a practice that I need to continue plodding through. And I use the word plodding intentionally because that's somewhat of what life is. And I don't use that in a negative or derogatory sense, but it's something that you just simply continue at. You live into, um, and, and again, not so much of a performance. Prayer simply is, is part of the Christian life. It's supposed to be like breathing, living, it's, it's grace and it's rest. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to see prayer through the lens of these psalms, uh, a wide variety and assortment of them. What we're going to look at today, and here's your roadmap for those of you that want to know exactly where we're going so you can know exactly when we're ending, uh, shape and structure of the book, uh, Psalm 1, kind of looking at that message that leads towards life, and then uh, some suggestions of postures that prayer can produce in us. So here's an overview of the Psalms. There's 150 of them from a variety of different authors. They're collected, like much of the New Testament, they were collected and collated during uh, the time of the exile where Israel was not in their promised land. They were spread out and kind of under God's judgment. And these were collected and assembled and put together. I believe it's the Bible Project who said that it's a literary temple. So while, while God's people were dispersed with no physical temple, they created this and built this as a literary temple to point their hearts towards who God is, towards what he had accomplished, and towards their hope in the future that rooted them in the present. 
It is divided into five books, and the arrangement tells the story, and the reader is invited to meet God and hear how history has and will continue to unfold. Uh, book one is chapter one through 40, the, or first through 41st, major themes of distress and confidence, and they all end in a similar way. I'll just read one of them. It's not going to be on the screens, but they all have this refrain. At the end of book one, in Psalm chapter 41, verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It has this theme that they go through confidence and distress and ends on this note again and again, blessed be or praise the God of Israel. Book two is 42 to 72, themes of lament and hope. Anthony, have you picked out your psalm yet for, for next week? Where is he? Yeah, what is it? Six, Six? okay. Lament. It's a lament. I, I knew he'd pick a sad psalm for you all. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> Uh, book 3, 73 to 89, I thought maybe that would be your selection. That's the darkest of all, um, especially Psalm 88 is the one psalm that has zero theme of hope or expectation. It is just sad, lament, darkness, no hope. So if you're especially in your feels, that's the psalm for you. Book four, 90 through 106, doubts in light of the Lord's reign. And then in book five, 107 to 150, that is uh, the Psalms of Ascent that God's people would say as they went up in elevation towards Jerusalem uh, in declaration and praise of God. The longest of them all is Psalm 119, 176 verses that are a Hebrew acrostic that are built around primarily the, the word of God. And so that's an overview of them. You have in the Psalms, there's imprecatory Psalms. These are probably the most uncomfortable for us modern readers to uh, read and understand where they're calling for and asking in sometimes very violent terms for God to judge their enemies, calls for justice. And, and again, in our modern brain, in our modern eyes, we look at it and we go, really? You're allowed to pray these things? I don't feel right praying these things for God to smash in people's teeth and toss babies on rocks. Like, that doesn't seem like a good prayer, but it's in the Psalms. They covered basically every single human emotion. Loneliness, love, awe, sorrow, regret, contrition, discouragement, turmoil, shame, marveling, delight, joy, gladness, fear, anger, peace, grief, desire, hope, brokenheartedness, gratitude, zeal, pain, confidence. To quote one of my favorite theologians, Anthony Garcia, he said this about a year ago. I've quoted this before. I found it in my old notes, and I said, this is, this is, this is good. Psalms are companions. They are the closest of friends, wisest advisors, and faithful discerners. They understand your heart and provide words when we don't have any. Not bad, right? You got him. Mm. Yeah. All right. So how do they help? Well, the language in, in the breadth of the Psalms, in the depth of the Psalms, they, they reorient us and show us what is really real. They kind of 
we in life, I often give this image, we just get fogged. If, if you've ever ridden dirt bikes or motorcycles or watched motocross before, you see uh, the mud and the dirt and all this stuff gets on their goggles and they've made these handy dandy goggles that you can rip away and get a clear vision again in the midst of it all. That's what the Psalms and really scripture as a whole does as we go throughout life and our, our view of reality is distorted. The Psalms pull it back. They give us, again, breadth and depth and reorient us, which restructures how we live in this world. And we need that because, again, the world wants to cloud that. And our own hearts have a tendency to get disoriented and mix up priorities. I heard a phrase for the first time a couple weeks ago that I've been saving because it just hit me between the eyes. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but it is this, that we as humans and individuals suffer from, and the phrase is, main character syndrome. Have you ever heard this? Main character syndrome. Psychology Today defines it as this. The term refers to a wide range of behaviors and thoughts, but at root is when somebody presents or imagines themselves is the lead in a sort of fictional version of their life, usually their own, although sometimes disturbingly somebody else's, and presents that life through social media or just in everyday conversation. Uh, the way I heard it in the negative is, uh, John, the world doesn't revolve around you. Main character syndrome in a, many of our operating system in our heart is, yeah, it does. <laughs> We think about and experience life through the lens of ourselves first and primary. What somebody says, how it affects us, all that. That the world revolves around us. To maybe put it in a little bit meaner terms, uh, Theophan the recluse, he was a Russian Orthodox priest, um, and his name just goes, yeah, this is going to be warm and fuzzy. Most people are like a shaving of wood which is curled round its central emptiness. <laughs> so you're in good company with the off and the recluse. Yeah. And again, there's something about human existence that is forces outside us in the world, in the devil, and, and even our own hearts that tend to get bent that seem to hollow us out into ourselves. And the good news of Jesus and the Psalms is there's a better way towards a good life, towards a whole life, towards a blessed life. And this is where Psalm 1 comes in. It, it is really the gateway and entry point and kind of the roadmap for the Psalms that it invites and instructs us towards the first word of it all, towards a life of blessing, a life of blessedness. Now, if there's ever been a word that is packed with, um, I don't know, the, uh, all sorts of different understandings that, that has kind of been turned into Christianese, if you will, blessed or blessing. I mean, it's what we say when we want to sound maybe holy. How are you? Oh, I'm blessed, pastor. What do you mean? It's what we say when people sneeze for some reason, and there's probably a great history that I never looked up behind that. What is blessed? Well, the scriptural understanding of that is wholeness, fullness, uh, and oh, how happy in the Beatitudes. This settled 
rest, joy, rooted in groundedness. The reason, and one of, that we misunderstand that is in our world, there's this whole culture around like, hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. And we primarily understand blessing is simply getting what we want on our terms, in our times. That's when we're blessed. And then anytime that isn't happening, which is, by the way, most of the time, it's a struggle bus. And so we look at this life of blessing primarily, again, through the lens of self and circumstance and situations and stuff. And then we compare it to everyone else, their successes against our failures, their abundance versus uh, our, our lack. And we go, when, when scripture points us to a different reality. The, the blessing isn't getting what I want, but it's this uh, term in this idea of communion with God, of God making us whole. And the blessed life comes from, at least in Psalm 1, a negative and a positive. Blessed is the, the one, the man, who walks not, so there's negative, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But, and here's the positive, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I, I don't know what your personality is. I think some of us tend towards the negative side of things, what we aren't supposed to do. And we can at times do that at the expense of the, the positive and the alternative in which God gives us. Others of us are just maybe more a little happy-go-lucky, and oh, I just, I'm just going to focus on these things and not ignore there's, there's negatives, there's things to avoid. And at least for parents, we need to present our kids with both, right? Not just don't, 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 don't. Like, well, got nothing to do. <laughs> but there's this positive of what it looks to follow after God. And so there's, again, this, this negative first. Um, don't do these things increasing company that those who are opposed to God would bring. And then this positive of delighting and meditating on God and his word, his law. Clinton McCann in his book, uh, Theological, I think it's Theological Introduction to Psalms, he says the introduction to the Psalter is anything but an invitation to pedantry, legalism, or self-righteousness. On the contrary, it is an invitation to be open to God's instruction and to the reality of God's reign in the world. So again, it says there's to be an avoidance of, in the phrase that I'm borrowing from some commentary, is increasing company with those opposed to God. Again, walking, standing, sitting. And then the positive delight and meditation on God. Not necessarily words that we use every single day in the modern English vernacular. Well, I delight in, well, I've been meditating on. We don't use that, but we enjoy and we obsess. And I can tell you what you enjoy and obsess in if you just hand over your phone and let me see your search history and your browser and your Amazon shopping cart. Like, that's, that's it, that's what we do. We delight and we meditate, at least I do, a lot. Uh, 
YouTube search history, the channels you subscribe to. Like, this guy watches a lot of fighting and shoe reviews. What's up with that? I don't know. It's, it's my thing right now. And so we are called to evaluate what we are ingesting, chewing on, delighting in, meditating in. In the degree in which it lines up with God in his story. And what we see throughout scripture is that God gave his law to his people as a revelation of his love. Many of us wouldn't think like, oh, I know what I need to do today. I need to delight in and meditate on Leviticus. I, I can almost guarantee that not a single one of us have ever th had that thought or that sentence go through our mind ever in our lifetime, right? I need to just meditate on Leviticus. Delight in Leviticus. And why that might be is because we don't have a right view of what God's law is in the context of the story. Now, I can understand most of us are going to spend maybe more time in the Gospel of John through a lifetime than Leviticus. Understandable. I'm not trying to shame that. But what we see is from Genesis all the way to Revelation, especially in this Old Testament that we have, God gave his law to his people in a time as a, as a revealer of his love and heart for them. And the Psalms go through that again and again and again, that God was forming a people between Egypt and the promised land for flourishing, that, that the law was meant to lead them towards life. And so the psalmist is saying, hey, God's people... Delight in, meditate on, not, not the things that would pull you away from center, but the things that have been given to us as a revealer of God's heart. That does something in a people, that does something in the life of an individual. And what is that? Well, you could insert a drum roll here. It produces a tree-like existence. <laughs> Yay. Just what we wanted. I want to be like a tree, a, a, a tree-like existence where we go, no, I want fast, famous, big things. I want to be an influencer. I want to make waves in this world. And Psalms goes, no, the good life is found in being like a tree. And I think we would be well uh, to actually take this to heart and observe trees. You can look at the book Hidden Life of Trees. I think Beth and Anthony gave that to me for Christmas. Like, hey, here, Here's a nerdy book on trees. This is delightful. But there's something about trees that teach us something about human existence and how there's a change in trees as you near water. For those of you that will be exiting out on Rosser and heading towards Highway 89 and you see the, the landscape and topography of the Prescott area, you can see there's something different about the trees by water. That's where we have our cottonwoods and our willows and these big, massive trees. And then you go outside of that water, which is most of the area, and you go, oh, the trees are different. They're small and they're shrubby and prickly. And they scratch me when I run by them. But there's something about water in these trees that are by water that produces this, this flourishing and this beauty in the world. And that's what the Psalms are pointing us to here. That for those that delight and meditate on God and his love and how he's revealed himself throughout time, you can be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf also does not wither, and whatever they do, they prosper. 
It may not be as exciting, as quick, as fast, and as famous as we are typically drawn towards. But if, and this is where the, the preacher puts in like the Tom Brady illustration when Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl or second Super Bowl and he's on 60 Minutes and he's like, gosh, there's got to be more to life than this. We've all been taught, or, or Jim Carrey's saying of he wishes everybody could get famous and rich so they can realize that it's not all that great. Like it doesn't heal the holes in your heart. Like that's where I put in all those illustrations, but they aren't in my notes. And so there you go. But it's the metaphors that we need. A tree-like prospering, rather than simply a up-and-to-the-right kind of financial, circumstantial things that can all be taken away in a moment's notice. There's a different kind of stability that can last and flourish regardless of the season of your soul. And so the first half of Psalm 1 is an invitation to delighting and meditating on God and his world of resisting those forces at work in our own hearts and in the world that would uh, wage war against our soul. And the second half shows what that life is like. It can be like a tree. But if we resist, verse 4, the wicked are not so but alike the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgments nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalm turns on this word, therefore, in verse 5. That for all that ignore that instruction, that ignore uh, that invitation, there will be, and the biblical word and theme of it is, is judgment. How, when, why, uh, not all of those questions are answered, but the, the hope and the confidence that Christians have and followers of Jesus have is this. It's three words, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. It's an incredibly freeing phrase that we can rest in. The Lord knows. What is it you're facing? The Lord knows. What is it you're wondering about longing for? The Lord knows. Where do you need healing? The Lord knows. What about those people? The Lord knows. What about the injustice of the world? The Lord knows. How is it all going to be sorted out? The Lord knows. The Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. Throughout the Psalms, we see how different writers deal with this reality of the seeming gap in that. God, you've promised this. God, you've said this. But then I look in the world, and, and, and it seems as though the reality is the opposite of that. There's plenty of prayers that are going, God, it seems as though the wicked is those who are opposed to you. They're doing really, really great. And here I am suffering. Here I am at a loss. Here I am struggling along when I've attempted to keep your word, when I've looked to follow after your ways, God, there's this incredible gap into that space. Not all of our questions are answered. Not every riddle we have in our brain is solved. But the promise we have is this, the Lord knows exactly where you're at, exactly what you're dealing with, 
exactly the ache and the pain and the hurt and the anxiety and the frustration and the fear. The Lord knows that place. And the Christian hope is that one day fully and finally he will deal with it all. Those words often for me are enough. If he knows, then I don't have to always have the answers, the solution, the, the master plan. I don't have to attempt to maintain any semblance of control. If the Lord knows, then I'm free to live into the mystery that is human existence. The Lord knows. And so the invitation of this psalm is to see the reign of God. He knows he will judge. To live under the rule of God. That is delighting and meditating on his law. And the promise is as uh, roots grow, we will have stability for life. The entirety of the book, all 150 psalms, are attempting to align to that reality through a variety of prayers, poems, contemplations, and reflections. And if you ever wondered what uh, a Psalm 1 life could look like, well, there's a person, and his name is Jesus. Where Jesus enters into this story is the one who perfectly walked not in the counsel of the wicked. He didn't stand in the way of sinners. He didn't seat, sit in the seat of scoffers. He dealt with and interacted with all of those folks as one who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. You see in the words of Jesus and in the prayers of Jesus, he prayed the Psalms. He not only prayed them, he lived them. I Charles Spurgeon used this quote from John Fry. I tried to find out who he was uh, that search was empty. Uh, he says, I have been induced to embrace the opinion of some among the ancient interpreters, Augustine, Jerome, etc., who conceived that the first psalm is intended to be a descriptive of the character and reward of the just one, i.e., the Lord Jesus. That in some way, this psalm, and really all psalms, point us to Christ, to delight in the law of the Lord, to meditate on his law day and night is really to use a New Testament phrase that Jesus gave us. It is to abide in him, to stay centered and close to the source. I want to reflect on or at least read to us all an extended passage from John where Jesus tells us in John 15 this. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He knows what is to face him, and he's giving his disciples some final instructions. And just thinking, and I am going to read it without any commentary so that my words won't get in the way of Jesus' words, but just reflect on the images, the metaphors, the, the promises, and the posture of Jesus towards his disciples. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You see in there, similarities in the language and the metaphors of this close connection to God by hearing what he said and living into it through obedience. That is no longer this selfishly inward turn, what about me type existence, but this I want to be concerned about what God's concerned about. And in that, that leads towards a life of love towards others. Following God has never been about simply accumulating more information, about learning some more things. I think that's often one of the struggles of 21st century modern world is we have so much information, and information can be good and helpful and beneficial in so many ways, but for so many of us we go, if we just consume a little bit more Christian information, then that will do the trick. And we do, and it doesn't. Because it was never meant to be simply about accumulating information in the mind. But as we learn who God is relationally, then we learn to follow him practically in daily life. So I'm not against books or learning or any of those things, unless that is becoming a blockade and an impediment towards actually following God in obedience. The Psalms and Jesus invite us into a deeper, richer, more abundant life with him. And so I would encourage you over these next, I don't know, eight weeks, and I'll put out some resources this week on the Psalms and on prayer, of perhaps you work through the 150 Psalms over the next couple months. And maybe out of those 150, you pray, talk to a friend, and meditate and chew on particularly, pick one of them that you just every day go through, perhaps memorize, and see what can come through that, what can be built, what can be shaped, what can be honed in your life as it reveals God. And some questions as you read through the Psalms. One, how does this reveal God in relationship with him? Uh, Secondly, in what ways do these psalms point me, us, to Christ? And then if I look to pray this or live this, how would I be shaped or changed? My hope is, as we go through this, that maybe a a few postures could be produced in us a little bit more. 
And I'm suggesting three when it comes to prayer and specifically in the Psalms. Number one, uh, consistency over intensity. In your life with Jesus, take a breath and relax. I don't think he's looking to stir us up and into this real feverish, emotional type thing. Although, again, emotions do play a part. But, but I don't think Jesus is so concerned about emotional isms. Your emotions and your personality deeply matter. And they're excellent indicators of, of life to learn to listen to your brain, to your body, where you're at. But they are not always the best dictators. I know there's some of us in the room that tend to lean towards a less emotional type existence. Maybe you're a little bit more introverted or like me, just somewhat emotionally stunted for a variety of reasons. How are you doing? Fine. Any other emotions? Angry? That's my spectrum. God's working on that and is, you know, put a few more colors on the palette for me, but at least when Karen and I first got married and before I got into counseling and all that, it's like, I got two gears, just fine and mad. And again, then what can happen is I compare myself to a brother or sister that may be a little more free or maybe be a little more feeling. I'm like, what's that? And I either get overly suspicious because I'm in comparison to that or I feel guilty because I don't have that and I maybe want that. Stop. Jesus, I don't think, is after drumming up feelings and emotions. What Psalm 1 points me to is, is a, to quote a, a great title, a long obedience in the same direction. It's a Eugene Peterson book. And so embrace and understand who God made you to be and in that what, what needs to be grown. And, and let go of the external pressures and opinions of what it should look like and feel like. Okay? Second, delight over duty. All relationships are better when you realize that you get to rather than you have to when you get to be in relationship, friendship, communion with another human. And it's the same with God. The gift of prayer is that we get to experience God himself, both in vocalizing our words to him and hearing his word towards us. Some of us want maybe this grand experience of hearing from God and think he's going to, you know, ah, thou shalt do this and like kind of have a Moses Ten Commandment-like experience. When often, if we just simply open up his word, and again, 150 Psalms, like we can hear God's word towards us as a guide and as a direction. I've said this before, that often we think we're hearing from the Lord. If it doesn't line up with what he's revealed in Genesis to Revelation, I can guarantee you it's not Jesus. I've heard some wild stuff over the years of what God told people to do, and you're like, there's a verse that says that's bad, a really, really bad idea. But the Lord, it's like, that's not, that's not the Lord. And I'm not going to say what it is, because every phrase just would get me in trouble. But you catch my gist. Anthony Bloom, uh, I think he's another Orthodox guy. We want something from him, God. 
not him at all. Is that a relationship? Do we behave in that way with our friends? Do we aim at what friendship can give us? Or is it a friend whom we love? Is this true with regard to our Lord? A really good book beginning to pray. The gift of prayer is that we receive God himself to hear him and be heard by him. And then finally, freedom over formulas. Freedom over formulas. Uh, You know the best way to pray is just to pray. Just to pray. And there's uh, so many books and resources and helps around it. And if they're helpful, praise God for it. And if they're not, then you don't need to adhere to them, the formulas. Again, one of my favorite books, uh, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Wonderful, wonderful book. The last third of the book is how he utilizes prayer cards. And for some people, him, that grateful, helpful tool. Me, not my favorite thing. Okay. Uh, You may have heard of the Acts method of prayer. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication, a word we use all the time. What is it? Okay, I've done adoration. I get that. Confession. Yeah, God, there's a lot of sin. Uh, Thanksgiving. Thank you. Supplicate. (laughs) What is that? Uh, Lord, I just want to supplicate to you. Amen. Uh, So once you all find out what supplication is, you can let me know, and then I'll give a little fuller teaching. Uh, Lectio Divina. Uh, The prayers of Compline. There's prayers of the hours. There's the divine office. There's silent prayer. There's listening prayer. There's labyrinths. There's the prayer of examine. Pick one, pick none. Just pray. And again, I don't want to throw shade on any of the helpful acronyms or tools. If it's helpful, wonderful. Embrace it, utilize it, maybe tell a friend about it. If that tool loses its helpfulness, move on to the next tool. Move on to the next thing. And you aren't a bad person for that. You're free. We're free in Jesus through Jesus, to communicate with God. So let's utilize that and embrace it, whatever the method or formula that we may find helpful. But above all that, you're free. None of them are magic bullets. In the chief end, if if I'm to quote the, the Westminster divines, what is the chief end of man? Sorry for any PTSD, Daniel, with Presbyterian background, but uh, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God, and enjoy him forever. I have to think, I gotta do all this stuff, I gotta glorify, glorify, glorify God. And in our glorifying of God, we can often forget there is this call to enjoyment with him. And I think the Psalms and prayers are an invitation to that. To see him, to trust him, to rest again that he knows. And in that, a tree-like stability can be brought in our lives together. Jesus uses the metaphor of building your house on a rock. That for us, followers of Jesus today, in the midst of a wild world where there's plenty of opportunities for shipwreck and foolishness, there's this path that we have towards stability and rootedness and flourishing that is outside of circumstances, that is outside of our wealth, that is outside of our health, that there's this deep joy that we can have 
in communing with the God of the universe who opened up this reality for all of us through Jesus. That Jesus came and through his cross and resurrection and sending his very spirit to dwell within us, we have this invitation to life with him anywhere and everywhere and with one another. And so friends, I invite you to a life of stability. How? There's no magic bullet. It's simply seeing and trusting and relying on God with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, the life. You are the one who knows. You are the one who is near. You are the one who is consistently inviting us towards life with you. And so we thank you, God, that you are the one who is willing and wanting to meet us where we are. Would you give us the boldness with the psalmist to pray, so search me, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there's any wicked way within us and lead us in the path of everlasting life. God, through this day and the rest of this gathering and into this week, I pray that you would reveal to us areas in which we have grown um, maybe stagnant, untrusting, frustrated, and we would get our eyes off of ourselves primarily, off of our circumstances, and we would see and re-commune with you in those places. And that, God, you would bring about your promises in our life, that we would be uh, just a people that are aligned, oriented, and prospering in the ways in which you promised. And so as we respond now, would you continue that work? In Christ's name we pray, amen.